the last two verses in Acts. We're going to read these last two verses and then work our way uh, to them um, in Paul's, what some would call, uh, fourth missionary journey, also known as imprisonment. Um, Here it is, Acts 28, verse 30 and 31. If you're in Romans, you've gone too far. Um, Acts 28, 30 and 31. This is the end. This is the end uh, to which Luke has been driving us towards. He, that being Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for um, this final message in our series on Acts. We thank you for the good things that you have taught us and the boldness that you've encouraged us through um, as you've revealed uh, the great boldness that your people can have as we seek your mission um, and have the, the power of the Holy Spirit in us and working through us. We pray that as we finish up Acts, we would be greatly encouraged um, through the truth of your word and through the hope that it brings into our hearts, regardless of whatever situations or circumstances we are in. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the final message in uh, our series on Acts. Believe it or not, we started this last fall, and I crammed a ton into these last couple of weeks. I hope you've been encouraged. But I really wanted to get it all done so when the seventh graders came in, we could start a new series. And also, I, I kind of felt like I really did want us to move quickly through Acts. I just wanted to give us an overview of Paul's journeys and missionary travels so that we'd have a better understanding of what it was like to be the Apostle Paul, especially the, the back background from which Paul wrote those letters that we know so well. Um, and our theme for the, the series that we've been in has been, you know, Acts Unstoppable and, and kind of focusing on how Jesus' work has continued in Acts from the, the gospel of Luke to Acts. And it's been an unstoppable work, just like Jesus' work uh, going to Jerusalem and going to the cross was unstoppable. So also his church's work in Acts is also unstoppable. Believe it or not, we haven't actually had that many messages in Acts. We've only had 21 messages. That's less than half of a year of messages. You guys have been really patient with me. Thank you for that. Um, and, and here we're, we're at the end. And, and once again, my, my, driving, my driving concern throughout Acts is to, to insist on you that, that Acts is an, an account of the continued work of Jesus as he pursues his actions of seeking and saving lost sinners. He does this through the church, through the church's witness, by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the plan of God. That is, that is what Acts is about, and I wanted you all to see that. And this morning, the unstoppable, unstoppable work of Jesus, um, we're going to see, is not even stopped by storms or winds or imprisonment or, or being shipwrecked at sea. It's not stopped by any of these things. Nothing on earth can stop the work that Jesus 
uh, continues to do. And there's something very important that I want you all to learn from these last two chapters in Acts. And no, it is not the, the, the airspeed and wind qualities of the Mediterranean Sea. It is not the shipping industry of the ancient Mediterranean world. Um, it is not how grain vessels functioned in the sea. It is not how prisoners were treated on those boats at the sea. Although you may learn all of those things. But no, I want you to learn a particular message about our Lord Jesus Christ and what it means to be on Jesus' team. The, the kind of the, the application of all of Acts is, hey, Jesus is continuing his work, and that work even continues today as Jesus continues to seek and save the lost, as Jesus continues to build up his church. And as you are seeking the things that Jesus is seeking, you can have boldness and confidence and, and comfort. You can, you can take heart because you know that Jesus is and will continue his work. And his work is unstoppable. That's kind of the, the whole applicational grid through which I've been driving all of my messages. And I hope you've been encouraged. And, and there's something very helpful to me about thinking about being on Jesus's team. Now, you may think I'm a little nerdy, weird, goofy, but I, I just love watching, I love watching football games, especially when I know their outcome. Uh, when I don't know their outcome, it's very nerve-wracking to me. But when I know the outcome, I love it. I love watching games that are years old on YouTube because I, I know their outcome. Uh, the thing I enjoy about the game is, is watching how players play, particularly when they're behind. Um, some teams, some teams lose when they're behind just because they can't overcome all of the hurdles and the obstacles that they are in. And other teams, they seem to rise up. And, and, and the, the common denominator that I always find with these teams, any sport will do, uh, the common denominator of a team that, that can come back from adversity or from being down and out is the fact that they have one player on their team that drives them all. To, to pursue higher things and to never give up. It's uh, an unpopular Super Bowl for all of you because none of you are Patriots fans, of course, except for Macy over there. Uh, but one of my favorite games to watch ever is the Super Bowl between the, the New England Patriots and the Atlanta Falcons. Sorry if there are any uh, Atlanta Falcons fans among you. Uh, you should be ashamed. Just hide, cover your heads. Uh, Atlanta had them beat 28-3 to at halftime. 28-3 to at halftime. That's a 25-point difference. Never has there been has there been a greater a greater comeback in the history of the Super Bowl era and of course what was going on on the Patriots sideline all the players were still encouraged still eager to do their jobs because they had Tom Brady on their team and they knew they could do it they knew he could do it and that gave them a fuel and a confidence that that lit their 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 fuse so to speak that energized all of their efforts they never gave up because they knew who was on their team now it's a silly illustration because it's nothing compared to the confidence that we should have because we are led by Jesus Christ he never he never is defeated his work is never stopped and even when we approach situations like storms at sea and being shipwrecked, his work is still continuing. In fact, as you'll see, as you've been seeing all throughout Acts, his work is through these hard times. So turn over to Acts 27. We're just going to kind of cruise through the story, and then I'm going to 
um, present just a few, uh, three lessons that I want you to take away from the, the final two chapters of Acts. Um, Acts 27 begins with this, this ship em- embarking out to sea. Um, the Romans are taking Paul to Caesar in Rome, and they find a ship for him. Um, going to um, to it's not Italy quite yet. It's it's actually going to be the, the the coast of Asia, as you'll see there in the first two verses. But let me just read it to you. Uh, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of. Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Now, just before we get into this, once again, I just want to kind of cruise through the story, but just to give you some insights in in terms of background on ship travel in the ancient world, there's some important things you should know about traveling around on the sea. Number one, sea travel was very dangerous. You would avoid it if you could. Shipwrecks were very common. Matter of fact, at this very point, Paul has already experienced three shipwrecks in his lifetime up to this point. He's not even been shipwrecked four times yet, and he's he's, he's already been shipwrecked three times, as it says in in 2 Corinthians 11. Ships were were good, though. They were preferred because they were fast and they were efficient, right? You could move a large quantity of goods or men very quickly. That's why people did ship travel. And another thing you should know about ship travel here is you, you didn't sail necessarily out to sea. There's a reason why people weren't going into the Atlantic and trying to find a new world. Nobody dared even go into the middle of the Mediterranean. You, if you had a boat, you, you, had, two, you had two sails on these, the, these boats of yours, and, and the, the goal was to stay as close to land as possible because these ships were not meant to be in the middle of the sea. As soon as you lost sight of land, you, you would lose hope. You would be at the mercy of the wind. Your, your, your goal was to kind, of, to kind of use the wind and hug the land and kind of travel along the coast. Matter of fact, in the summertime, which was the only time that you would want to travel, the winds would actually be coming from the, let's see if I can do this in mere fashion for you, they'd be coming from the northwest and be traveling down to the southeast. So they'd be coming basically from France all the way down to Egypt. So if you were on this ship like Paul was on, and you were trying to get from, you know, Israel, uh, Caesarea, uh, all the way up to Rome, you would have to hug the coast because you'd be traveling right into the wind. And these were ancient boats that were completely dependent on the wind. And so you, you'd have to hug the coast and kind of work your way up using the wind as you could because the wind was coming right against you. It was very difficult. And, and also, a, another thing to consider when you're thinking about uh, the background of sea travel in those days is, is wintertime was particularly dangerous for sea travel. In fact, the Romans, by law, forbid people from traveling between the days of November 10th and March 10th, because the winds were so dangerous, they'd be coming, they'd shift a little bit, they'd start coming right from the north and go slamming down south, and they could, they could destroy any ship, whip you around, and you could lose control and quickly become disoriented, and then you'd smash into the coast of Africa, and as we'll see here later, that was a very dangerous thing to go near the coast of Africa. 
So, all to say, um, boats were used in those times, but they were mainly used only for transportation of men or of grain. As a matter of fact, what we will see here in, in our passage today is, is Paul um, is put on a, a grain ship. Not a Roman transport ship, but a grain ship. All, mainly the ships in the Mediterranean were transporting grain. The Romans would jump aboard these ships to kind of transport prisoners sometimes, but there was no such thing as kind of a passenger vessel. That wasn't really a thing that they were trying to do in the ancient world. They were trying to transport grain. The, the Roman economy depended on the grains from um, Alexandria and Egypt. So they would, they would seek to have these grain boats go up along the coast of Israel and then along the coast of Asia and make its way to Rome. And this is probably the ship that Paul would be on. He'd be on a lumbering grain ship, a big grain ship that was hard to maneuver, particularly when things got windy. That's kind of the the background as they embark. And, And one more thing, just tuck this away. Notice Paul has some friends with him. He has at least two friends with him. In verse 2, you see that he has a friend from Macedonia, Aristarchus, with him. And we also see the, the plural we form there. It's probably Luke also that is writing this, this account that is also with Luke. So Paul has at least two friends with him. And this man, Aristarchus, should be interesting to you. His name has appeared before. He was the one that the, the Ephesian rioters grabbed and beat um, in the in the in that great uh, beating that that when there was that riot in Ephesus in, in Acts 19, they took him because they couldn't find Paul. Aristarchus was used to suffering with Paul, and and here Aristarchus is joining with Paul on this prisoner voyage. As a matter of fact, in Colossians 4:10, he is referred to again as Paul's fellow prisoner. And now that should that should sink in once again. Remember. The Romans, Romans weren't in the habit of making passenger vessels, and, and this would have been a grain vessel that this Roman centurion would have, would have gained passage on in order to transport all of these prisoners. So having a, having a, a friend of a prisoner really wasn't considered, um, that was unheard of, really. The only way this man probably could get on board is to, is to either become a prisoner himself or to somehow make himself a slave of Paul and there be, there be also joined with Paul. Either way, I want you to just notice this, and we'll talk about this in a minute. It was costly to be a friend of the Apostle Paul. It was costly to be a friend for the gospel. It cost Aristarchus much of his freedom and comfort, but he sacrificed all of this so that he could be with Paul. But here we move to the next part of the journey. And this is in verses 3 through 6. This is what I would title the easy part of the trip. Um, They stop in Sidon, just a little bit north of Caesarea. Uh, Remember, once again, they're hugging the coast. Uh, Actually, boats like this weren't even made to um, to be overnight vessels, they would stop at ports and sleep in those ports, and even the prisoners themselves would have to provide their own food for these trips and also their own lodging in these ports. Um, and and from there, after they stop in Sidon, you can see, and, and I would actually encourage you to to grab the map in the back of your Bible. There, you can see if if your Bible's like mine, you've got Paul's missionary journeys, and then the final map you see. Um, uh, Paul's voyage to Rome outline for you. You kind of 
can kind of follow. Um, from here, this is the easy part of the journey. They stop in Sidon, and then they jump right over northeast of Cyprus. In your Bible, verse 4, it says that they went uh, around or under the lee of Cyprus. And a lee is just referring to something that blocks you from the wind. Remember, wind was everything in ship travel. You, if you were going against the wind, you could do nothing. So sometimes they would plan out their routes to, to be blocked by the wind. And they make their way all the way up to a port called Myra in verse 5. Myra in Lycia. Myra, it might not sound like an important uh, port to you, but this was actually a major important uh, port in the ancient world. It was due north, due north of uh, Egypt and Alexandria, where all of these grain ships came from. And, and it was actually a great uh, center of grain Export and importing. They had these massive granaries where they keep all these grain, all this grain, and, and it's said that this port would even even hold a lot of the grain for the Roman army. And so this was a very important port to the ancient world. And there's a funny little side story about this port as well. Um, this is actually the hometown, home location of St. Nick from uh, uh, Christmas lore, if you're, any of you are interested. Um, that is where he's from. He's from Myra. And from there, they jump on another ship. You see there that it's headed for Rome. And this would, of course, have been one of those large, another one of those large, cumbersome grain vessels. Some estimates say it would have been about 180 feet long. It would have been about 1,200 tons in weight. This would have been a massive ship. Even Christopher Columbus's uh, ship, the Pinta, was only 55 feet long and only displaced about 70 tons. So this was a pretty big ship. This was as big as ships came in the ancient world for a long time. But remember, it was big and it was loaded with grain, so it would be very hard to handle. And this brings us to uh, chapter 27, 7 through 12, where we see problems pick up. From Myra, if you're looking at your map, they head south to Crete because they are unable to make their way any further west because the wind is pushing against them so hard. As a matter of fact, if, if you're reading this in Greek, verses 7 and verses 8 are all one big, long sentence. And it's supposed to have this sense of building up in intensity and tension. I mean, look at what he is saying here. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, that is just below um, Turkey. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off uh, Salmon, coasting along with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, which was the city, which was near the city of Lesia. So basically, see, they, they, they're, heading, they're heading west, and then they get stopped by the wind, and this drives them back down to Cyprus, um, and to Crete, sorry, to Crete. And, and they come to this harbor called Fair Havens, and you're like, oh, that sounds wonderful. I've read Lord of the Rings. Fair Havens is a great place. That's like heaven, right? Uh, but actually, Fair Havens was not so great of a place. Sailors didn't actually like uh, Fair Havens. It was Great Havens, Lord of the Rings, sorry. Apologize to, my, to your sister for me. Um, it was not a great place. It was not fair at all. Matter of fact, it didn't have much wind shelter. So this, of course, led the sailors and the pilot to want to move on, to, to travel just down underneath Crete, just a little ways, to another main port called Phoenix. You can see that there. In verses 12, Paul, of course, is urging them not to. He's been in three shipwrecks before, but they don't want to listen to Paul. And they're like, hey, it's only, it's only about, you know, 
uh, 42 nautical miles. Uh, the average ship could travel 55 miles a day. They're like, this is an easy day's travel. If we go to Phoenix, at least we'll have a better wintering port. Why don't we go there? And maybe they were hoping for bigger and better things, like to run up to Rome even if the wind picked up. So they attempt this. And, and here in verse 9, we have this very important time stamp. Much time had passed, it says, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Now, to you, you might not know what the fast is referring to. This is more than likely referring to the Day of Atonement, which this year would have been happening in August, uh, sorry, October 5th. And so you see this sense in which the, the, the hours are getting late, right? The, the fall is coming. November 10th is coming when things are going to get very dangerous. And Paul himself is seeing that the, the, the winds this time of year are increasingly dangerous. He tries to encourage them not to go, but they do not do it. And so they try to make this quick, easy day voyage to Phoenix. And of course, this leads us to verse 13. And I've titled this section, verse 13 all the way through 20, uh, this idea of being beaten by the storm. They are destroyed by the storm. Look at verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. Now notice there is this there's this deceptive south wind kind of lulling them to sleep here. They're like, hey, look at this. We're getting away with it. We're going to be able to get to Phoenix. Matter of fact, they, they weigh anchor. They're not so cautious anymore as they, they travel along the southern side of the island of Crete. But this is where the geography of the island of Crete could perhaps be helpful because there's this thing that comes upon them called a tempestuous wind called a nor northeaster. And basically what's happening here, if I was a weatherman, which I'm not, I would probably get very excited about this, but the winds are beginning to shift. As the, as the fall increases, the winds begin to shift from traveling towards the, let's see here, traveling towards the southeast to traveling just directly south. And, and what's going on here, meteorologically, that was a word, which it's not. Uh, what's happening here is the, the cold winds from Europe are clashing with the hot winds of the Sahara in Africa. And this is causing the winds to go down directly south. And Crete, the island of Crete, has this mountain pass right along the middle of it, which when these winds come at it from, from the north traveling south, they go over the mountains and then slam down on the south side of Crete, causing great turbulent weather in the water. So initially, this south wind, which is traveling from north to south, appears to be innocent, but soon it becomes dangerous. As a matter of fact, it's so dangerous it blows them madly off their course. Notice verse 14. Uh, but soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cadia. Notice once again, there they are trying to use an island to block the wind, but, but essentially they're starting to lose hope here. The wind is starting to pull them away from the island of Crete. They can't get back to even Phoenix, they can't get back to Fair Havens, they can't get back to anything, and they're being driven out to the sea, and all hope is beginning to be lost. Now, when they come to this little, 
little, little small island of Katia. They're able to do a few things. They're able to secure their, their ship a little bit more. They put ropes over the ship to hold the hull together. And this is kind of interesting because if you know anything about grain, when grain gets wet, it starts expanding. So they tie ropes around the ship to hold it together so it will not explode from the inside. They also take their lifeboat and they pull it in with great difficulty, Luke tells us. They, they bring it on board. Usually the lifeboat would be dragging along the back of the ship a little bit. They have to do all of these things, and they can barely do this um, in this little protection that this small island affords them. Now I want to show you something else. After hoisting it up, uh, they, they undergird the ship there in verse 17. But then you see in verse 17, then fearing that they would run aground on the uh, Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Now, no, no, real quick, we see the fear of these sailors. Once, once you lose sight of Crete, it's, it's hopelessness. You're going to be slammed down into this thing called the Sirtis, which was a very dangerous um, uh, gathering and collection of like, of quicksand versus slash sandbars sort of things off the coast of Libya in Africa. This was called the, the graveyard of ships. And once you lost sight of Crete and were blown south, you knew it was all over because then the next thing you would hit would be these things off of Africa. And they're starting to descend more and more into hopelessness because of this. They can't do anything. They're lowering everything they can. They're removing things. They're trying to secure things. But really, hopelessness is descending. Notice what it says in verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. These men have expended every idea that they could come up with. They've used every piece of equipment. They've thrown everything they can into the sea to try to control themselves, but they cannot control this storm. It is beyond their strength. Now, if you're a careful reader... You'll think to yourself, you know, I haven't really heard much from Paul in this entire trip. He tried to stop them, of course, in verse 9, tried to stop them from even going out on this voyage. He tried to keep them in fair havens, even though it wasn't an ideal port, it's better than being shipwrecked. But really, they have chosen to ignore him and ignore Paul. And notice where their life has gone. When you ignore God's messenger, your life eventually will end in hopelessness. But this is where we come to our next section. Right when the ship is in the the most gloomy posture possible, Paul stands up, we're told. And Paul speaks a message of surprising hope. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now you might think, oh, Paul, you're being a little bit mean there. But remember, Paul needs to establish his authority, needs to establish the wisdom that he has already spoken so that they'll listen to the words he is going to say from here on out. Verse 22, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. (laughs) Kind of encouraging. Uh, For... This very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God, that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Notice, it's a message of hope. 
It's a, it's a message of assurance. It's, it's a message that repeats the words, take heart, take heart two times. But it's also a message that has reality, right? We're going to, we're going to run aground, but you can take heart. Why can they take heart? Because they happen to have the man that the Lord Jesus Christ has chosen to bring to Caesar with them. They can be encouraged. They can be encouraged because the Lord has made promises to Paul on this vessel. Uh, They can have hope because they are with Paul. And and notice this also. Uh, Not only can they have hope because Paul is with them, they can have hope because Paul has been praying for them as well. Did you notice verse 24? Verse 24 says this, uh, the, the angel says to Paul, do not be afraid, you must stand before Caesar. And then notice also, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. The word granted there is graciously granted. It seems to imply that Paul has been praying. He's been praying for the welfare of those that are on this ship. And now because of Paul's influence, because of Paul's presence on the ship, Grace is actually granted to all of those that are with Paul as well. Now, you can think to yourself in this way. You might not be the Apostle Paul, but you are a Christian who has God's love set on you. You have Christ's provisions with you. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and Christ's purposes will stand with you. But you will still experience the same winds and waves and struggles and trials and troubles that other people in this world will experience. But you will not experience it the same way. You can experience these troubles in a different way, in an others-oriented way. You can pray for others while in these trials. You do not need to be conformed to this world and how you experience anxiety. You can use your trials for prayer. But this, this leads us to the, the, the rest of the chapter, and here it brings us all the way to Rome. And from here, it's a, really, it's a really interesting account, because you see Paul goes from the prisoner, from the, 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 guy, the, the lowest guy on the totem pole in the ship, who nobody was listening to in the beginning, to the highest guy on the ship. Uh, he goes from crook to captain of the ship. And just a few examples of this. Uh, the centurion trusts Paul so much that when Paul says, hey, if, if the sailors try to escape on this lifeboat that they're trying to use to uh, escape with, uh, we're all going to be lost, he says this in verse 32. And so the centurion cuts away the lifeboat. He trusts in Paul's word so much. And in verse 36, everybody is encouraged. Everybody is willing to eat because of Paul's bidding. And then in verse 42, a very unusual thing happens. They're about to get shipwrecked on this small island that Paul promised them was coming. And what would normally happen here is the Roman soldiers would try to kill the prisoners because as we've seen in Acts 12 and in Acts 16, if you lose the prisoner you're guarding, you will suffer the same fate as them, which means all of these soldiers would die if they lost even one prisoner. They're getting ready to kill Paul, but the centurion trusts and respects Paul so much, we are told, in verse 42, that he risks his own life and the the lives of all of his soldiers in order to spare Saul's life. All to say, Paul has leadership. Paul has influence on this ship that he didn't have initially. And why does he have this influence? Because he's a stable person, because he trusts in God, because he trusts in the stability of God's promises. And he is a man of stability. When crisis comes to all those around him, 
He is a source of comfort and peace and promise. And he's also not unrealistically detached. Notice also God's people are not just people that are ignorant of the problems faced by those around them and themselves. He is involved in the problem, but this leads people to trust him. Right? And this, once again, relates to our own life. We, we, are, we, are, we are not called to stand and be sources of influence in our world because we are problem-free, but we are, we are able to stand and be the source of comfort to our world because we can live lives that are anxiety-free. We can live lives that trust in God even in the hardest, most difficult situations. We can be anxiety-free. One more side thing. Notice all the people that were on this ship. Verse 37. There were 276 persons in this ship. That probably means there was a lot of sailors, but that also means there was probably a lot of prisoners. A lot of prisoners on board, but, but they all make it safely to shore. Verse 44 tells us, on planks or on pieces of ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Very similar here to when Paul was in the Philippian jail and, and the, the earthquake strikes and, and nobody dares leave because they all want to stay with Paul, it would seem. And then in verse 28, we see Paul continues on to Rome. He's, he's in Malta, the island of Malta. And if you're looking at your map, you see this is some small island. And the chances of, of Paul's uh, ship hitting this island are so remote, it is remarkable. You see Christ's power even to bring them there. But here on the island of Malta, Paul wields influence that is similar to the early days of Jesus' ministry and the early days of Paul as well. Soon many in the island um, um, follow Paul and trust in his word and even come to faith in Jesus. And then from Malta, they travel up to Sicily and then to Rome. The port of Rome there is actually 170 miles from Rome, as it says in verse 13. But here Paul travels up by foot from from this port called Potoli in verse 13 all the way to Rome. And, and on his way, many brothers hear of him and they come to him. And I want you to notice something in verse 15. And the brothers there, uh, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Apius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. In, in Rome, Paul once again has to pay his own board, his own, his own food and lodging. He has to pay for these things. And of course, we know from, from his letters that the churches were providing for him, mainly the church of Philippi. But we also see that Paul begins a practice here that he has always followed. He reaches the Jews in his community first before he goes to the Gentiles. And, and we see this here. He, he first reaches out to the elders of the Jews. And, and the first thing he does is he establishes his innocence. He says, hey, I was brought here for no reason other than the fact that I hope in the, the resurrection of Israel. And then, of course, this causes a lot of interest to, to gather and grow among Paul, because if you, if you read, you'll see that they hadn't heard anything from the Jerusalem um, authorities about why Paul was being sent yet. They hadn't even sent a messenger at all yet. They didn't know anything. But they wanted to hear about this hope of Israel that Paul was presenting. So, verse 23, uh, it talks about a significant day, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great number. First off, what does that tell you about Paul's lodging? 
Uh, a lot of people were crammed into it. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right, he said, in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to a people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Verse 28, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Once again, the, the message of Jesus is presented as Paul has always presented it in every synagogue. It's presented to the Jews. They reject it. Some believe, but they mainly reject it. And then Paul moves on to the Gentiles. And this leads us to, to Luke's final statement. Here, Paul stayed for two years, paying his own way. But notice, the word of God continued to go out with all boldness and without hindrance. Once again, Jesus has successfully gotten his man to Rome. I mean, maybe it wouldn't be the way you'd prefer it, but Jesus always accomplishes his purpose. And this is, once again, the encouragement that you can have. And and notice the freedom of the ministry of the word that, that Luke also presents for us there. The message of Christ is spreading unhindered. It is unstoppable. This is the continued theme of the book of Acts. So let's drive back to our our application here. What does it mean? What does it mean to be on Christ's team, knowing that his work will be unstoppable, uh, and being on his team. What, what does it mean? Well, number one, here, here, here's, a, here's a thought for you to take away from these two chapters. Uh, you, number one, will be on his team. You will not be spared dangers, troubles, and burdens of this life. Notice, uh, Paul was promised to go to Rome, but Jesus didn't transport him instantly to Rome. That would have been nice, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus allowed Paul to go through burdens, troubles, toils of this life on this ship. Well, notice also Jesus didn't reveal all of the trouble that was coming Paul's way, only that he would experience trouble. So we could say from this, uh, following Jesus uh, doesn't, doesn't mean you don't have to plan, work hard, um, spend some sweat, maybe some blood, in, in working hard to follow Jesus. You, you may be forced to suffer physical weaknesses, limitations, even sicknesses, just like the world around you. Uh, you. You may have to work really hard to pay your own way to follow Jesus and follow in his purposes. You, you will still experience hindrances and difficulties and troubles. Not just because you know the ending, just because you know Jesus is going to work all this out for your glory, does not mean it will be easy. It will require faith and patience and perseverance. And it will, it will also require a faithful, ordinary life of prayer as well. Paul himself said this in Acts 14.22. You remember, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We will encounter lots of difficulties in this life if we want to live faithful to Christ Jesus. But you know what these difficulties cause us to do? Uh, They cause us to drive 
to Christ in prayer. They, they cause us to pray to him eagerly, earnestly. We know that he is going to work the outcome out for his glory, but we don't know how he's going to work all the details out in our lives. But we must faithfully continue to work day after day and be faithful to the message we've been given him. Yeah, that's, that's the first application. That will be true, but, but also... I want you to also see something from these last two chapters. If you're on Christ's team, that is, you will be freed from crippling anxiety in your life. And we see this, right? Paul goes through all of these troubles. He experiences all of this weakness that is common to man, shipwrecks, maybe even hunger, cold, exposure, all of these things. But he doesn't live a life like everyone else. He is not crippled by anxiety in his life. Now, we know from 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight that if you're going to be faithful to Jesus, you will have burdens and anxieties in your life, but they will be a different kind. You are not, you are not crippled like the world is crippled. If we go back to Paul's speech and, and remember those words that he gave to the, the seamen that were with him, take heart two times. The Christian can take heart in God even in the worst situations because they know that he is continually working and he is continually moving with his continual unstoppable purposes to put you right where he wants you. You can continue to take heart in God because you know that the Lord is working. Or you could say it this way, to, to, to kind of drive the message back to the Gospel of Luke. You can take heart in any situation, any difficulty, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, because you know the one who commands the winds and the waves. And you know he, he can make it stop when he is ready to make it stop. You know the one who is more powerful than even the worst this world can offer. You know the one who is to be feared more than even death itself, and so you can take heart. But also, remember this, you know the one who not only has power, great power, but you also know the one who has great precision in his power. You know the one who can cause a storm in your life to move you in such a way that it will get you exactly where he wants you to be so that you can be a bold and effective witness for his glory on a random small island in the middle of the Mediterranean. He has great power, but he also has great precision. So you need not be crippled by anxiety in your life because you know the one who is in control of it all. And that is an encouraging thought. So we will, we, will, we will not be spared dangers and toils and troubles, yes. But also we don't have to be crippled by anxiety. But the last application I want you to think about is, in all of this, you will be used to bring grace to others. Why does Paul have to go through all of this? Well, to bring God's truth to a bunch of sailors and a bunch of island folk that need to know. He doesn't totally understand the inner workings of God's sovereign plan, but notice the result. The result is God's word continues to go out. Notice the, the hero of this sea voyage is not Paul. It's the, the word of Christ that goes through Paul, and that is true of us as well. You will be also used to bring grace to others. Now, I want to be theologically clear for you. Just because you are with a Christian 
Just because you're on a ship with a Christian does not necessarily mean you'll be safe. Remember, a Christian encounters a lot of troubles. And just because you are with a Christian does not mean you are going to be eternally secure, too. Ultimately, your eternal state is decided by who you trust in, who you believe in, who you obey. Is the gospel true for you? Do you obey the truth of the gospel? You can't just attach yourself to your family, to your parents, and think you're going to be good. But notice there is a grace that is spread to others, even unbelievers, through the presence of a believer. Notice, with unbelievers, Paul is, is there among them and a force for good, stabilizing influence among unbelievers. This is very similar to the account we have in Genesis 18, where Abraham is praying for the lost and depraved city of Sodom, right? He, he prays for unbelievers, and through his prayers... Unbelievers are spared and given grace by God. Matter of fact, God always shows mercy for the sake of the elect. We see that often. And this mercy extends to unbelievers as well. We are a, uh, an instrument of grace to our world. And we can, we can be salty Christians, as Jesus would tell us in the Sermon on the Mount, right? We, we should be... We should be the kind of people whose presence provides a restraining power to sin, right? We are encouraging friends to steer clear from sin. We are encouraging friends to think about the truth of God's word and who Jesus is. We, we should have an impact, a restraining impact on those around us. This is the Christian's impact with unbelievers. But there's also something to be learned from these short chapters about the Christian's ability to bring grace to believers as well. Remember verse 15 of 28. Paul was not immune to trouble, and Paul was not immune to the need for encouragement as well. Notice all those Christians from Rome come and find him, and what is the result on seeing them? In verse 15, Paul thanked God and took courage. You need other believers in your life to be faithful to the mission that Christ has given you. You need other believers in your life to continue to endure, to be the kind of salty Christian that you are called to be. Even Paul needed people. Paul is constantly connected with people. Notice, even Paul needed people on this ship with him. And here is a good message for you. You are not able to handle this life on your own. The Lord Jesus Christ has provided power and strength to you through other people in his church. I, I love the picture of Aristarchus in, in verse 2 of 27. He sacrifices so much. He goes through so much. He is such an ordinary believer so that he can provide encouragement to Paul. That is ultimately who we're called to be like, right? People that provide hope and encouragement and comfort. Our, our, our very prayers, our very presence can provide uh, a means of grace to believers beyond our imagination. And, and we can have this encouragement and we can have this comfort from the work of the Lord Jesus through us because of who Jesus is. We know that he is all-powerful and very precise in his power and he will accomplish his work. And we can have encouragement because of that. There you have it. I know it could have been done maybe in two or three messages, but there's Acts in 21 messages. So I hope you guys all appreciate that. Let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this message of comfort and assurance and conviction and even courage. 
Um, we thank you that you are continuing the work, and we pray that we would have eyes to see the small things in our life that you are working through, and we would be uh, sharp instruments in your hands to provide grace and truth to those around us, believers and unbelievers. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.